Welcome to our adult Bible uh, study, our Sunday school. And this morning, we're back in uh, Galatians. We're continuing our going through the book of Galatians. It's been a tremendous blessing. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. <clears throat> Blessed Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have now the wonderful, wonderful opportunity to together delve into your word, and we just pray, Lord, that you will open our eyes, that we may see wondrous things from your word. We commend this time to you and pray for your blessing upon it and your, your guidance throughout and our being built up and transformed through your word. We ask this in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we're coming to chapter 5, the end of chapter 5. So we'll cover the last verse, verse 26 in chapter 5, and then we'll go through chapter 6 uh, and verse 6. Let's go ahead and we'll read that portion of Scripture, and we'll start in our, in our lesson. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 26. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. So as we come to this passage, of course, we are just finishing the wonderful section in chapter 5 in which Paul has delved into the subject of you know, walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh and the importance of that in the life of the believer. And now as we transition into this other session, the end, this verse 26, and we take it as part of this session because of the fact that it is sort of a transition verse. At the same time, it, it, it is part of the whole process of thought that goes into uh, the end of verse 6 in chapter 6. Now in general, in our society, uh, people live we tend to live individualistic lives, and uh, this individualism is mediated through our culture. It's emphasized through our culture. Often we identify a Christian life with private prayer and private reading of Scripture and studying Scripture, while scarcely sometimes giving any thought to serving other believers in the body of Christ. However, in the passage we have before us today that we're looking at, uh, we learn that the life in the Spirit, as we have been looking at in the previous section, is community life. It, it's not an individualistic life lived only in fellowship with God individually, but it is community life. The body of Christ is a community, spiritual community. It's a living organism which our Fellowship together is crucial. A life that is pleasing to Christ is humble 
and not self-absorbed or conceited. And that's why it's so important not to be so immersed in our culture that takes us away from that. Instead of being caught up with ourselves, we are called as believers to care for others in the body of Christ. What it means to live in the church of Jesus Christ is to help others as they stumble, and that's what we have before in the, in the passage that we have this morning. Now, sin is a reality in all of our lives as believers. Um, in First John chapter one and verse eight, John says, "If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us." And then in verse ten, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. And James chapter 3 and verse 2 tells us that we all stumble in many ways. So sin is a fact of our unredeemed humanness, our flesh. Still, even though we have been redeemed, we still have remnant of the flesh that we deal with in our sin. And the most important pursuit for all Christians, both as individuals and corporately is holiness. The utmost purpose of the church is to honor and glorify God, and he can be honored and glorified only as we grow to be like him, as we grow in holiness in our character. Holiness is the only foundation on which effective evangelism or effective ministry of any kind can be carried out. And we know the effect of sin many times in, in ministries that are devastated by the presence of sin. The supreme priority of the church is holiness, purity of inward life. Now, holiness, of course, involves growing in Christ-likeness, in knowledge of and obedience to God's Word, and then in submission to His Spirit. <clears throat> It involves correcting what is impure. It involves our life being um, lived not in holiness, both individually and together as the body of Christ, so that the witness of the church is not nullified. Now, that aspect of holiness is the theme of our passage this morning. So as we begin in looking at verse 26, it says, Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Now you know there's a contrary. He begins with it's sort of a negative state and telling us what we do not need to do, what we, the life, what we should not be identified with in our life as believers. And of course, the previous verse he has spoken of in terms of walking in the, um, in the Spirit. In this verse, we are told how Christians should not treat each other. It's an instructive verse because it shows that our sinful conduct, which is specified here as provoking one another and envying one another, is determined by a prideful opinion of ourselves. The most boastful or conceited the word boastful or conceited denotes somebody who has an opinion of himself which is empty, vain, or false. Indeed, when relationships 
between believers deteriorate, very often pride is the main cause. The words here for challenging or provoking one another imply that we are so sure of our superiority that we want to demonstrate it. And so we challenge people to dispute it in order to give ourselves a chance to prove that we are superior. Certainly the pride is at the center of this. Now those sinful attitudes are marks of immaturity in the Christian. It's a sinful uh, attitude by Christians who place their own interest above the interest of fellow believers. Of course, this violates what Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 tells us. There Paul states, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So we can see here what a contrast it is. What we're looking at in verse 26, what Paul states here, compared to the fact that we are called to look out for the interests of others above our own, to not be uh, driven by pride, by our care for others. Now, the characteristics described in verse 26 are those of believers who are not walking by the Spirit, but who are in the flesh, and therefore they are disrupting the body fellowship by producing deeds of the flesh rather than the fruit of the Spirit. And so we see here a contrast from the previous section. Now, the sin of self-righteousness does great damage to the church because it undermines true righteousness. Holiness is manifested in meekness and, of course, is credited completely to the grace of God and the work of the Spirit and the Word. But though a Christian, the first concern of the Christian must be for his own holiness and purity of life, God's Word makes it clear that he also has a responsibility for the holiness and purity of the rest of the church. So we are not only concerned, which we certainly are, with our own personal holiness. This is crucial and it's basic. But we must keep in mind that God calls us also to be pure as a body, and therefore we all have a role to play in this aspect. Instead of provoking and envying one another, as is stated in verse 26, we are called to watch over and restore those who sin. And we are going to see that in the rest of the passage, beginning in verse 1 now, in chapter 6. The Lord Jesus himself established the pattern, because as we think of this, of dealing with a believer that is caught in sin, of course, it is sort of a subset of church discipline, not in the sense that we are usually uh, used to think of it, but there is some discipline involved. But uh, the process itself was established in, by the Lord Jesus and stated in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, when he said, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, every kind of sin, from disorderly conduct to immorality to false teaching, is to be disciplined. All Christians are subject to that discipline. Now, to be spiritually healthy and effective in its ministry, the church must deal with sin within its own ranks. Unfortunately, we see many instances in the modern church at large where sin is minimized to accommodate either cultural mores or individual relationships in the church, and then it is not dealt with. And, of course, this has a devastating effect in the purity of the church and, therefore, a devastating effect in its testimony and ministry before the world. It's often uh, to trifle with sin, to ignore it under the guise of love, which is often done, or to fail for any other reason to cleanse the church of sin is disastrous. And oftentimes, an ill-advised concept of what love is, sin is minimized. As often is the case, however, as we are called here in this process of helping a believer who is caught in sin, and remember, as we think about this, and the same as we think of church discipline at large, but particularly in this case, we'll see, the purpose is to restore the believer. So we're looking at restoring a believer who has been caught in sin. But as we are involved in this process, however, there is also an opposite danger. Just as the flesh makes it easy to ignore sin within the church, it also makes it easy to discipline in the wrong way and with the wrong spirit. And this, of course, then goes to what is the attitude that we must have as we deal with a brother or a sister who is caught in sin. There's always a temptation to deal with sinning members out of a self-righteous, judgmental attitude rather than from a genuinely humble and righteous concern for the purity of the Lord's body. And, and this is a crucial aspect of restoring a fallen brother. Because we all have our natural tendencies, as we spoke about in the beginning, in terms of pride is looming within us constantly. And the attitude that we must have in restoring a fallen brother is completely the opposite of that. Addressing that danger here then, Paul, in our passage this morning, admonishes the Galatian church to take special care to discipline in the right way. Rather than being boastful, considered proud, as he's mentioned in, in verse 26 of chapter 5, challenging one another and envying one another, we as part of the body of Christ must be humble, loving, gracious, and helpful to one another, especially as we deal with someone who is sinning. Now, examining the passage that we're looking at this morning, we're following an outline by Pastor John MacArthur, which is effective in capturing the flow of this passage. And so he divides this passage, as we're going to verse uh, 1 of chapter 6, into three sections. Chapters, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, here the apostle declares that when a sinning brother is disciplined, 
the spiritual members of the church, and of course when we speak of spiritual, there is a sense, of course, that all believers are spirituals because we all have the Holy Spirit. We have been redeemed. We have made new creatures, and so we are all spiritual. But the term here is used in the sense of really a mature spiritual Christian, one who is, as we are dealing with the passage we just looked at, walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. So as we speak of a spiritual Christian, this is what we are, we are referring to. So the um, apostle here declares that when the spiritual members of the church should deal with someone who is sinning, there's three aspects of it. In verse 1, the outline he terms, he says, we mu- must pick him or her up. Verses 2 to 5, we must hold him or her up. And then in verse 6, we must build him up. So let's begin as we look at verse 1. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now the first responsibility, of course, a spiritual leader, a mature believer who seeks to restore a fallen brother or sister, is to help pick that person up. When a person stumbles, and literally that's sort of the picture that we have here, one who stumbles in sin, the first need is to help that person get up. And oftentimes the person needs assistance in doing that. Now an integral part of church discipline, therefore, is helping a fallen brother get back on his feet spiritually and morally. It says even if a man is caught in any trespass, it says he deserves help and encouragement, as well as a rebuke for his sin. So and as we're dealing with this, we are not overlooking the sin, but we are speaking the truth in love. Now the word caught here may imply that a person was actually seen committing the trespass and indicating there was no doubt about his guilt. But the Greek verb here also allows for the idea of the person being caught by the trespass, as it were. That is a sense of the King James rendering when it says persons overtaken in a fault. And it seems appropriate in this context. Now that interpretation is also supported by the fact that Paul uses, in the, the word trespass here, the Greek word, has the basic idea of stumbling or falling. This person does not commit the sin with premeditation necessarily, but rather falls fails to be on his guard, or perhaps fits, flirts with a temptation that he thinks he thinks he can withstand. Now, of course, that is sort of the the, uh, tendent, uh, the way this is expressed here, but when we deal with sin in the church, we deal with any type of sin, whether it's uh, this more stumbling like this or actually premeditated sin. The man does, doesn't commit the, the sin uh, or simply... Um, as a person tries to live his own life on its own power and falls, it produces deeds of the flesh instead of fruits of the Spirit. And here we have the responsibility to discipline. Now notice that this is, we are all tasked with the responsibility of being aware of the and responding to it. Those who stumble and those who commit more serious sins Uh, The church must be, those who are spiritual, must be aware and deal with it. 
Now, spiritual believers, as we said, are those who are walking in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. The spiritually and morally strong have a responsibility for the spiritually and morally weak. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 1, Paul says, We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. So spiritual believers are to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. That's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14. It's not that the spiritual believers are to be suspicious and inquisitive, and this is important. The idea here is not that we go around kind of meddling into people's lives to see what we can find and see what things are lurking underneath the shadows, but the purpose here is when a sin is obvious, is prominent, we are aware of it, then we deal with it. Before God... We um, have the right, we don't have actually the right not to be disciplined when we are aware of sin that's occurred in a fellow believer within the body of Christ. We're commanded to restore such a one. So here we're not just suggested, we are commanded to do it. And when a church is committed to restoring falling members, then it's on its way to being pure and usable by God. Now, the word that's used in the Greek here to restore, katartizo, means to mend or repair and was sometimes used uh, metaphorically or restoring harmony among quarreling factions in the dispute. It was also used of setting a broken bone or putting a dislocated limb back into place. Spiritual believers restore a fallen believer, first of all, by helping him to recognize his trespass as a trespass. It is important to come alongside the person and help them identify that there is a sin present there and make that without a doubt. Because until a person admits his sin, he can't be helped out of it. Now, once that is done, then the person must be encouraged to confess his sin before God and turn away from it in repentance, sincerely seeking God's forgiveness. And we are to be an instrument of that process. Restoration of fallen brothers and sisters is always to be done in a spirit of gentleness. Notice in this verse. It is done in a spirit of gentleness, which is characteristic of those who walk by the Spirit. And you can see that in chapter 5, which we saw in the previous section, and in verse 23. A Christian who is critical and judgmental as he attempts to help a fallen brother, does not show the grace of Christ or help his brother, but instead stumbles himself. And that's why this, you know, verse 26, when it's presented with that other side, it's, it's the other showing us what we are not to be like as we go in this, uh, in this process. After a church, after someone has exercised proper discipline, the members should forgive and comfort the one who has been disciplined, lest someone such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And we saw, see that in Second Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7 when Paul there is, expresses about someone who has been disciplined and he expresses, now you forgive him, you take him back. And so in the individual relationship as we restore a, a falling or stumbling brother, or sister, we must certainly 
do this. He should not be regarded as an enemy, but admonish as a brother. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 15. From the caution, each one looking for to yourself, then this verse tells us, lest you be tempted, it is clear that even spiritual believers can stumble. We all have remaining flesh in us. The exhortation looking to yourself is vital. As we go through this process, we must examine ourselves. And it's in the present tense, which emphasizes a continual diligent attentiveness to the person's own purity. The person, too, could be tempted and even fall in the same sin for which they are disciplining the brother or sister involved. The attitude of every Christian should always be the attitude of the Lord Jesus. And we, in Philippians chapter 2, when Paul speaks in the passage we just read earlier, he actually uses the Lord Jesus' incarnation, his humiliation, as an illustration of the attitude that we must have, the same attitude that was in the Lord Jesus. And when a believer needs to help discipline a fallen brother, he should ask for a special portion of Christ's love and gentleness. Now, as we go into the second section, verses 2 through 5, then the, <clears throat> the outline here says, then we should hold them up. And it says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own load. The second responsibility of a spiritual believer here is then to help that person once we have helped them up then we must help, in a sense, hold them up. It's not enough to simply turn them from sin, but then leave them alone to his own devices because of the fact that there's a great possibility he may not be able to stay up. It's immediately after a spiritual victory that Satan often makes the severest attacks on God's children. We are to continually present tense again, to bear one another's burden. So the concept here is once you have helped the person to confess the sin, recognize the sin, you pick them up, you help hold them up in the sense of bearing that person's burdens. Now, the word bear has the thought of carrying with endurance. And um, the words that is used here, refers to heavy loads that are difficult to carry, to lift and carry. So the implication here, it is very difficult for this person who has fallen and now is beginning in the process of restoration, difficult to carry this burden by himself or by herself. So the believer that has come along and helped in recognizing the sin now comes along, walks alongside helping to carry that burden. It is, of course, used metaphorically here as it represents any difficulty or problem that a person has trouble coping with. In the context of the passage, the reference suggests burdens that tempt the, the believer that is, was sinning to fall back into the trespass from which he has been delivered. There is a persistent oppression temptation, and it, that's one of the heaviest burdens that a Christian can have. 
Now the spiritual believer then, who truly loves this brother and sincerely wants to restore him to a walk by the Spirit, then will continue to spend time with him and make himself available to counsel, to encourage, and to admonish from the Word. Of course, prayer is the most powerful weapon that we have in conquering sin and opposing Satan. And nothing helps that sinning brother or sister carry their burdens as much as prayer for him and with him. The person who's been delivered by, from the trespass has an obligation to let his spiritual friend, the one who's come alongside, help him carry his burdens. And this comment, I make this comment, you know, the, the fact is sometimes uh, people out of pride don't want to be helped or are not accessible to being helped. And again, we must help that person see that he must humble himself and allow the person to help him carry the burden. It is not being spiritual but prideful that makes a person want to go at it alone. James tells believers to confess their sins to one another and pray for one another so that they may be healed, as in chapter 5, verse 16. Of course, the Lord himself and the Word of God, the Holy Spirit working through the, that, is the believer's ultimate source of strength. And on God, we are called to cast our burdens and our cares. But the Lord uses fellow believers, as we see described in this passage, as part of the means of restoring and holding up the believer who's been sinning. Now, as we go into verse 3, it says, if for, if for anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, Paul then continues, he deceives himself. Now, at first glance, this statement seems to be a little bit out of place here, or at least doesn't seem to be continuing the previous thought. But in light of the call for spiritual believers to restore sinning brothers in a spirit of gentleness, in verse 1, the need of this warning then becomes apparent if you think about it. One of the chief, reason, chief reasons that many Christians don't bother to help fellow Christians is that they feel superior to sinners and wrongly consider themselves to be spiritual something when the truth is they are really nothing. And so this warning again from Paul as we are involved in this process. Like the Pharisees, the concern of this person is not for true righteousness that God gives, and that only comes through humility, but for their own self-righteousness, which has no part in God's kingdom or, or its work. Now, pride, of course, can coexist with outward morality, but it cannot coexist with mature spirituality. The spiritual mature Christian cannot have pride be a prominent part of, of his life. The Christian who thinks he is something when he is nothing needs help in facing his own sin before he can be qualified to help anyone else out of their sin. As the Lord states in Matthew 7, chapter 7, he must take the log out of his own eye first. If he refuses to see his own spiritual need, he deceives himself and is useless in serving God or in helping fellow believers. So this is, again, a, a warning as we examine ourselves if we see any of this then we're really not qualified to help the believer then the greek verb here 
behind deceives means to lead one's mind astray and relates to subjective thoughts that are self-deceptive. Therefore, we must all examine our own work and our own life, and then we'll have reason for boasting in regard to, to him alone and not in regard to another. When he states here, <clears throat> so then and only then we'll have reason for boasting in a proper way. Because if anything remains for boasting after an honest self-examination, it, it will be that which induces our boasting in the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17 says, But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. So the point here that God does not compare believers to each other, but to his divine perfect standards of righteousness. If we examine ourselves, we are not to be comparing ourselves to others. The, the word, um, I'm sorry, then Paul's command for each one to bear his own load, then in verse 5, as we go to verse 5, he says, for each one will bear his own load. It's interesting because this in the first look it seems to sort of contradict what he just said about bearing one another's burdens in, in verse 2. But he uses a different term here. The word that is used for load here refers to anything that is carried and has no connotation of difficulty. It was often used of the general obligations of life that a person is responsible to bear on his own. Therefore, for a Christian, the load referred to in this verse here can be his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, for which he will give an account before the judgment seat of Christ. His load here can also refer to fulfilling his personal calling and ministry for the Lord. It's the same word that the Lord Jesus used in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 30 when he assured his followers that the load of service he gives to them is light. When he says, my burden is light. In other words, what this verse is saying is we, each one individually, are responsible for our own behavior. Every believer is accountable to bear his own load in this sense, even the light one Christ gives us, and to answer for our faithfulness in so doing when we face Christ. And then finally, as we come to the verse 6, and it says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Then the, part of the outline here, then we must build up the believer. So we have helped them and in terms of uh, this point, we must then build them up. And this, of course, involves an ongoing relationship in terms of building up. And this is the third responsibility that we have in, in restoring a believer who has uh, fallen in sin, is to build them up. Now, build them up is a very important part of the process because you want to get them to the point where they're not so easily led astray. We want to help them mature spiritually, so that they don't keep falling back, back and led astray. Again, this verse also doesn't seem to fit into what Paul is focusing in this passage. However, <clears throat> uh, and it's an interesting verse. Now, if you look at the commentaries in uh, this verse in particular, the majority of the commentaries interpret this verse in the sense 
And the most common is that Paul here is exhorting congregations to pay their pastor fairly. He says, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Now, that's certainly a principle that's taught in the New Testament, and we have no doubt about that, and it's clear. It is taught in Luke 10.7, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7-14, to 14, and other places. And it's principle, we have no argument in, with that. However, the question is, is that really what Paul is teaching here? Now, he has just been talking about restoring sinning brothers, and in verses 7 and 8 as he, that follow, he will talk about sowing and reaping in the flesh of the Spirit. Not only that, but no mention is made of financial support of, or necessarily of any kind of material support in this verse or following. And the expression good things can include material goods, but that does not seem to be the sense here. The Greek word that's used here for good things can be translated, or the, in this, as we look at the whole verse, we can sort of be translated in this sense, let him who receives instruction share with him who gives instruction in all good things. And such a rendering seems appropriate. Now, as we think about the context of what we've been talking about here, there's another way that is this verse can also be interpreted. Because the Greek word that is used here uh, for material goods doesn't have that same sense that is in, uh, in interpreting in terms of material uh, remuneration for someone who teaches the word. The word that he used for share here, the one who's taught the word is to share all good things, is the word koinonia, which has the basic idea of sharing equally. So it's not just one person sharing. It's the verb from which the noun commonly is translated, the word fellowship. So Paul is talking about mutual sharing, not of one party serving or providing for the other, but of both parties sharing together here. So the one who is taught the word and the one who teaches have a common fellowship and should share all good things together. The most common term for material things that are favorable or good is a, not a different Greek word. But the good things that it's spoken of here translates from the plural of agathos, which is, a, is used in the New Testament primarily of spiritual and moral excellence. For example, Paul uses the same word in describing the gospel itself in Romans chapter 10 and verse 15 when he speaks of the glad tidings of good things. And the writer of Hebrews uses it in the same way of the good things to come, of which Christ appears the high priest in Hebrews 9 and verse 11. And also in chapter 10 and verse 1, he speaks of the law was only a shadow and the good things. Now, what this implies is you now have a teaching relationship in, the, in verse 6 of uh, Galatians again. It implies that you have a teaching relationship with this believer who will respond to your instruction by sharing good things back with you so that the, this kind of restoration is not a short-term enterprise. And here is the emphasis. You have picked up this believer. You have held this believer up by helping to share the heavy load, the burden. 
Now you become the instructor building them up. And what will happen is you will build up the believer in the word and he will share back with you all good things. Now, what does that mean? Good things, the word agathos, just means spiritual goodness, spiritual blessings. Paul is saying now as you build that believer up, you begin to see the work of the word and the spirit in that believer's life. And by virtue of the proximity and intimacy of, and friendship, you'll be here receiving spiritual benefits that flow out of your investment in that person's life. Under this interpretation, the sharing of all good things is the third step in the restoration of a fallen believer. So the spiritual uh, Christian who's picked up and has held up his falling brother also builds him up in the word and these good things that they fellowship together in these good things. So when we see a brother or a sister who is walking off the path, we go to them, we reach out a hand, and we lift that believer up. We draw that believer back to the path of the Holy Spirit with embracing love, and then we hold that believer up by coming alongside to strengthen them and to, in prayer and personal care and helping to bear the burden. And then we help that believer be built up in the Word and by teaching the believer so that the believer will not fall again into the same trap. And we walk together in koinonia and fellowship. This is our task and this is how the church sustains and maintains its holiness and unity. And its unity is a unity of love. And as our Lord said, if you have love for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples. Okay, now we'll break up into the groups. The questions are up here. And um, we have time then for a discussion group.